I wanted to talk about the. As I go toward where I identify as having a monoclonal heart, I'm really liable to get really angry. Yeah. Really affected. Bye. So the question is what the question is more what should we do when the mind fills with you know the problem is one's own personal anger and what to do with it in response to challenge. Yeah, and I associate that with you know going toward an open heart where I can be remain more less volatile. It's a very good place to begin, you know. when uh, Donald was here last week and he talked about anger and working with anger and uh, many of my friends who are Dharma teachers will say that the most frequently asked question in connection with Dharma teaching from practitioners is what should I do about anger? I think that people ask it most persistently for two reasons. It's the thing that we have the most for many people the most difficulty with uh, we lead very challenged lives. We lead relational lives in um, perhaps more than, well, who knows what's normally stressful times. You know, maybe every single time in the history of the world was a stressful time. But we live challenged lives. We have nervous systems that respond with startle and alarm and often anger pursuant to the startle and alarm. That's just the way we're wired, some people more than others. And the presence of alarm and startle and then anger in the mind is really antithetical to the open heart. It really requires a certain level of equanimity for open-heartedness to manifest. You know, when, you think of when, when we teach about the Brahma-viharas, uh, metta, karuna, um, mudita, upeka, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Really, I think we should teach it backwards, equanimity, and then out of that place of balance, friendliness, and compassion, and sympathetic joy. So the heart has to be somewhat balanced for those other qualities, which I think are inherent in our very nature, to manifest themselves. So one reason I think people ask a lot is because it's a problem, anger, for all of us. You know, if we didn't have nervous systems, we couldn't manage in the world. We wouldn't take care of ourselves. We have to know what to respond to when we are jeopardized. So we have to have some sort of a nervous system. The question is how much of a nervous system? And when does that nervous system overwhelm us? And when are we able to calm it down and say, well, this is what's happening. I don't like it, and I'll do everything I can to change it, but I'll give up being mad at it happening. I'll give up bitterness against what's happening. In fact, really, that's the, the crux of what I want to talk about today, so I'm very happy that you asked the question. So I want to really talk about the uh, paramitas again, and talk about these ten qualities of the heart that manifest in, that continue to develop um, as we continue to practice. I think we have them to begin with. I think we refine them with continued practice and deeper wisdom or insight. 
I think they're inherent to the nature of human beings. As a, they're not skills that we have to learn completely anew, like playing the violin or walking a tightrope. Or, but I think they're, they're um, potentials of the human heart <laughs> that we develop with practice. And that there's a sense that we have, I think all of us, of uh, recognition of the fact that goodness is pleasing to us, that when, when we're the kind of person that we'd like to be, we feel good. I think another reason why it's such a commonly asked question, what should I do with my anger, is because we have an idea that a spiritual person doesn't get angry. And we want so badly to be spiritual people. I think spiritual people are people. And, uh, and that everybody has the same heart. Everybody wants not to be so trapped in the anger. Not that anger won't arise and annoyance won't arise. That it shouldn't stay there as a trap. That should be arise. We should recognize it. We should respond to the root causes of it. What has happened to frighten me? What has happened to startle me? Do what we can and then somehow be okay with how things are. So that's really what I want to get around to talk about. I wanted to tell you one um, little piece of uh, a personal experience I had. You know, I was gone these last two weeks, and sometimes when I uh, hear a teaching that's very good, I think to myself, I'm going to go back to Spirit Rock and tell these folks. So I uh, heard Martin Luther, uh, on Martin Luther King weekend, I heard William Sloan Coffin, who was one of the people who walked with Martin Luther King from Selma to Montgomery in that very famous march. Uh, he spoke at um, B'nai Jeshurun, a very large synagogue on the Upper West Side of New York. You think about uh, three people marching with linked arms in the front of that march were, uh, among other people, many people were marching, were uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King. Abraham Joshua Heschel was a rabbi and theologian and teacher at Jewish at the um, Jewish Theological uh, Seminary. And William Sloan Coffin was the chaplain at Yale University at the time. So Heschel is dead, and uh, Reverend King we know about. And um, William Sloan Coffin is an old man, and he was there talking. And uh, it was very touching. Uh, he's had a stroke in the last few years, but his speech is quite good. He apologized for if it wasn't, but it was fine. And uh, what he really talked about, mostly, was how do we define each of us, who we are? What are the ways in, what, is, uh, what do we look at to help us make the decision, who is it that I actually am? And he talked about the ways that uh, when he was a, uh, a chaplain at Yale and working with uh, undergraduates, particularly talking to people who wanted to go on to graduate school, is that people so much define themselves by how well they did in school, you know, by their grades. First of all, they were in a prestigious university to begin with. But then who was going to get into what graduate school? And if they didn't get in from Yale, which is already a very high level of, they were in Yale, they are graduating, they're applying to graduate school. But if they didn't get into that one, 
that it mattered terribly to them, that, the, that for a certain number of people, what their level of, how the community recognizes their level of academic excellence is their principal self-measure of uh, worth. We talked about people who identify tremendously with a, a particular political cause, which is sometimes a very valuable thing to do to support a particular political cause. I, I'm sure, I hope we all do support with passion the political causes that we think are the correct ones. But he said, if our whole being is as a part of that cause, when that cause is no longer as compelling, or when that particular election is over, or that particular conflict has ended, you're left with really a feeling of who am I and what am I if if that which defines me is outside, and that's not so compelling at this point, what am I inside? Even when you think about uh, how much am I like the person that I'd like to be? I think, what are the criteria for the people that we'd like to be, you know? Uh, I, I, read, uh, I read a lot of the magazines that are on the newsstands. I read them when I check out of the supermarket, you can read a few magazines on the way out of the supermarket before you even get up there. You don't. So uh, it, I see uh, cover stories on magazines that say um, the ten most beautiful people in the world, or the ten most beautiful women in the world, and then you wonder by what criteria are these the ten most beautiful women in the world? Or, Ten most beautiful men in the world, and sexiest men in the world. You don't normally see magazines that say the ten nicest people in the world. You know, uh, ten kindest people in the world, you know? because the, the ten most beautiful, the ten most handsome, or the ten most famous won't be there two years from now. There'll be ten more, more beautiful, more famous, more current. Um, because there are things that change, uh, at least in the standards that we have of certain, a certain way that beauty looks. But niceness, you know, that, that could not change. And besides, who could measure it from the outside? You know, you could say, okay, given the standard, current standards of physical attractiveness, you could take people and have a beauty pageant. But how would you measure by looking at people, how, what the context of their heart was, what their heart looked like. The only people who can measure it are the people living in that heart. We really uh, admire people who look like they live out of a place of a wonderful heart. I think that's why the Dalai Lama is um, all over the place as an icon on billboards, uh, advertising not Buddhist seminars or books, advertising something else that's meant to convey the image um, that, or the using His Holiness on the billboard is meant to convey that using this and this product will give you peace of mind or peace of heart or kindness. <laughs> They're really the things we'd like to have or um, people uh, uh, admired Mother Teresa so much um, with with, uh, certainly with a lot of adequate reasons to do that. I know a very uh, 
lovely story, lovely to me anyway, about Mother Teresa, about um, some friends of mine um, 25 years ago, some of them people you would know from this community, um, were in India and uh, they went with a video crew to uh, make a film of Mother Teresa and uh, add her um, place that she ran the Sisters of Mercy, and uh, they they arrived with a full, you know, film crew and video crew at the end of a day, and um, apparently either her, uh, they had an appointment to film during the two-hour segment, and apparently either Mother Teresa had forgotten or her people who kept her appointment calendar had forgotten to tell her because at the, it was near the end of the day, and as they were shown in and the door opened and they came in with video cameras and all this stuff, and uh, clearly startled her. She was not expecting them. And uh, the person who told me the story said, you could see her face drop in that moment um, of dismay. She said, but then she pulled it together a moment later and did the whole interview. So. I love that story because I I don't th I, for a while someone said well see even Mother Teresa wasn't Mother Teresa all the time but I think <laughs> but I think she was you know I like to think that Mother Teresa was a human being like everybody else and that at the end of the day we get tired or we'd like to go and lie down and we would not like to do yet one more thing but when we are called upon we rise to the occasion I really loved it that. Some years later, a, a number of years later, not long before her death, uh, she resigned. She retired as the head of that order. She said, I'm too old and I'm too sick and I can't do it anymore. And uh, they had a vote for the new, uh, the, the community voted for the new abbess. And they voted for her. <laughs> so she said, okay. And I love that story. You know, it's just the same as your face falls. You say, I don't want to do that. But if you have to, you do it. Those are just really wonderful stories of, it isn't what I wanted, but I'm, it's what I'm supposed to do. It's what's appropriate. You know, so we're going to redeem appropriate as a word. What's the appropriate? So I think to myself, it's not so much what do other people think about us? I, I, I feel that this is true for me, and I think it's for you as well true, that uh, it matters much more what I think of myself than what other people think of me. I think I really need, I feel most comfortable when I'm behaving like the kind of person I'd like to behave like. Um, the psychology word for that is ego ideal. We get a certain ego ideal of what we feel we'd like to be like. Uh, I like those Mother Teresa stories because that's what I like to be like. And when I can do that, I feel good about myself. Uh, the, the story that came to mind this morning when I was thinking about talking about this is um, when my grandfather was very, very old, not long before he died. Uh, well into his 90s, but clear of my, and clear of mind. He said to me, you know, um, uh, after I die, 
there isn't going to be anybody who's going to have anything bad to say about me. You know? That's really... Did not leave a trail. He was meticulous in not doing any bad things to anybody. Imagine thinking about not being remembered for the great things that you did. My grandfather was a plain man. So in the sphere of you remember people for their great works or their great poetry or their great artistry, he said, you know, nobody's going to have anything not good to say about me. That's really lovely. Um, so I have that as my ego ideal. I don't want to leave unfinished business. That brings us back to the Taurus question earlier of if I have a list of people with whom I am not reconciled in my heart about, then they might not be reconciled in their heart about me. So part of the doing the homework is on behalf of my own heart that I know I have no pile. I won't leave a list of people who have me posthumously on their list even. So I wanted to talk about, I wanted to remind you of the list of uh, traits, that list, list of capacities of the heart. I, I've started to think of those parameters as capacities of the heart that as uh, human beings, we can develop and refine. They're there to begin with, but we can really practice generosity or morality or honesty, truthfulness. You know, truthfulness is hard. I telling the telling the entry level truth, you know, what time did you get up this morning? I could tell that. You know, most of us most of us tell the truth. Did you see so and so yesterday? Yes or no. It's pretty simple. Most of us do not lie on those kinds of things. I work the hardest on when I am not when I discover that I have not been truthful completely because I have not allowed myself for various reasons to see the whole truth because it's painful to me. And when I am in some way not open to hearing the whole truth because I don't want to hear it, and then I can't be completely truthful because I, I, I really don't have all the information, it would mean that I would have to make myself completely open and, in a sense, vulnerable to learning those things about myself. So generosity and wisdom and... Uh, morality and patience and honesty and determination and energy and loving-kindness and equanimity and renunciation. Renunciation is the tenth. And I want to talk a little bit about renunciation, particularly today. When I said that list, by the way, if you had, if I had said in a minute, ready, set, go, turn to the person next to you and say, which of those ten are you the strongest in? Generosity, wisdom, patience, determination, energy, loving kindness, equanimity, honesty, morality. Which one did you think? Maybe we will at the end of the time. <laughs> we have a funny hesitation, you know, about telling each other our loveliness. You know, we don't like, if, if I were to say, these are the five hindrances of. Uh, uh, greed and aversion and uh, torpor and restlessness and doubt, which one is your most troublesome one? Ready, set, go. Everybody would cop to the one that's theirs right away. We don't somehow mind that. We're a sort of sharing of difficulties culture, but somehow when it comes to say, you know, I am scrupulously honest or I am tremendously moral. It hurts me tremendously when I do an immoral thing. We just really 
like shy about it. I, I, don't you think of that? Am I the only one that thinks so? If I said, ready, set, go, tell the person next to you which you are most wonderfully strong in. Think about it. The reason I, I want to talk about renunciation for two reasons. I've been thinking about it a lot. <clears throat> and because it's a particular one to talk about as a Buddhist teacher. Um, who is not a monastic in a consumerist culture. It's because I, it's, it's a complex issue, the renunciation. In the days of the Buddha, a renunciate was a person who renounced the worldly life. Uh, and becoming a member of the Buddhist, Buddha's uh, order was called going forth into homelessness. And it was thought of as a desirable thing to do, both for one's own uh, development of wisdom, it was esteemed in the community. Going forth into homelessness is not esteemed. And um, I suppose now that Buddhism is more, um, maybe it is now, that Buddhism is becoming more uh, widely understood in our culture, but still, people wonder about people who take vows and maybe because a lot of us are not monastics as well and so the, the whole discussion of uh, how the monastic life in a particular way supports the growing of wisdom <coughs> that by the way very attractive to me you know I think about it on and off and wonder about had my uh, had my background been different of course, you don't know had my background be different. I'd be a whole different person. But had I grown up in another culture, in another religious context, I have a lot of the monastic um, in me. I'm very happy in monasteries. I like quiet practice. Um, I have a life that's unfolding in another way, consistent with how I was born and how I grew up, which also gives me a great deal of pleasure. Sometimes I have the fantasy that I'm living simultaneously two lives, and there's another one of me somewhere that's a monastic <laughs> at this very moment, sitting somewhere in robes, doing whatever. But I, I really think that. But. but in the time of the Buddha, a, monast a, a, a renunciate was someone who renounced the worldly life. He gave up your name, he gave up your possessions, he gave up your attachments to family. And those were seen as the most, when you can do it, could do it, when you had the circumstances to do it, it was seen as the most fortunate aid to practice and uh, allowed you to practice letting go of things, which is really the lifelong practice that we all have to do. We have to, as we grow up, we have to let go of hopes that we had that didn't come to pass. We have to let go of bodies that we had that don't work in quite the same way anymore. Uh, we have to let go of all the roads not taken that we didn't take, that we can't start taking now. Um, sometimes when people talk about there were uh, forks in the roads of my life where I had to turn right or left and I made the right turn. And had I gone left, had I gone to law school instead of become a musician, or had, had I become a musician instead of going to law school, so there are prominent forks in the road when we look back in our own life. When a whole piece of us didn't continue to develop fully because this piece did. 
I, in fact, think that we make those choices every day. They're just not so obvious. We go in this door or not that door. We're always making choices. There's some huge choices. This partner or that partner, this vocation or that vocation. But I think all the time we're making choices. But in the days of the Buddha, clearly the renunciate was a, a lifestyle kind of term. I think now about uh, renunciation being not so much a physical renunciation of um, lifestyle, a worldly life or a monastic life, um, but of a, of a renun- renouncing of a kind of renouncing in the heart of bitterness, of any bitterness that persists about any part of one's experience. Very hard. It's, not, it's normal to get angry, to retain a sense of bitterness and beleagueredness and feeling wrongedness and belligerence about it, I think is extra. To be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, is a huge renounce. It's renouncing the fact, renouncing bitterness, that it didn't happen the way you wanted. But it's also a huge act of wisdom, that the world doesn't happen the way we want, really. We're not in charge. So the act of renunciation is actually an act of wisdom. It's actually an act of clear seeing. It couldn't have been another way. You know, it didn't happen because the universe conspired against me. The karmic confluence of all the events forever make this moment. What I do now will affect the next moment. But this moment arising is the grandchild of everything that ever, ever happened. It couldn't be otherwise. To be mad at it is to be mad at the lawful cosmos. It's extra. I mean, it happens. Why me? Why not? You know, that is really, it's extra. We do that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a reflex, but it's a great wisdom to say, why not? Not I deserve it because of something I did. I got it because of everything that everybody did, which is really, I think, the fullest understanding of karma. I'm in this world because of everything that everybody did. And what I'm living is because of everything that everyone ever did, including me. And what will happen will be the result of everything that everyone ever does, including me. So I'm not in charge. Neither can I put down the ball for a second. It's a very clear mandate for me. So renouncing the sense that we are in charge. I used to think with some... Uh, with some uh, some rueful sadness sometimes, a, a, a tremendous sympathy in, uh, in the days when I was working more as a psychotherapist. And people would say, I'm not comfortable unless I'm in charge of things. And I think to myself, we are never in charge of things, really. You know, and I don't like to have things out of my control. It's all out of our control. You know? can control what I have for lunch this afternoon if I live that long. You know, but... Really. But it, I think that's, that's a fundamental piece of wisdom. So you can say renunciate practice is wisdom practice. wanted to read um, 
a little piece of this book called The Dalai Lama, My Son, uh, by the mother of the Dalai Lama. Um, it's quite wonderful. I got it in the bookstore here. Um, it's about renouncing bitterness about the way things are. I'll read a little bit to you, just because it's so good. It talks about uh, when she got married. She got married uh, young. Her first child was born, I think, when she was 19. And, uh, went to live with her husband's family in some distant place. Took nine hours by horseback back to her family as was the custom in those days. My mother-in-law never did a stroke of work. She was bossy and domineering and not afraid of anyone. She was led by her emotions and fancies, and she liked to eat, dress, and live well. She was extremely clean. If there was even one strand of grass in the house, she would pick it up and throw it away. She was also hot-tempered and was sometimes physically violent. I, being the daughter-in-law, had to take it all. Her sharp tongue made me the brunt of many miseries. If she was having her meal on the kong, which is like a sort of raised table that you sit on, sitting place, heated. Um, I could not remain in the same room, but had to eat in the kitchen. Even then, I always had to eat standing up. Yet, she was also warm-hearted and generous, and she shared everything fairly and equally. By the way, so far, I, I just think that's lovely. You know, that you get a hint that she did, you know, she did all these things, really grievous things, hot-tempered, violent, and she shared things fairly. It was marvelous to me to see that the mind can hold everything that doesn't so fill up with the terrible that you can't fit in the other stuff. At times I was touched by her consideration because I worked in the fields, the end of my sleeves invariably got torn. My mother-in-law would attempt to stitch them for me even though she could not sew well at all. I always had to redo them because she often made them worse than before. <laughs> my father-in-law was quite active on the farm and made two trips to the fields with the farmhands every day. He was a good and kind man. When I cut wheat and rolled it into sheaves, I could never tie them up so he would assist me. He did not know how to scold a person. The most he ever said was, how incompetent, muttered under his breath. <laughs> the husband and wife relationship in those days was not one of equality. The woman was always subservient to the man, even though she was supreme in domestic matters. My husband was an upright and honest man, straightforward but powerful and domineering with a hot temper. He was fond of gambling and having a good time, and he loved riding swift horses. Like his mother, he did no work. <laughs> he was never at home very long and did not even know what we had sown in the fields. I got up at 1 o'clock in the morning to fetch water for the servants and the farmhands. I went early in the morning because it was less crowded at that hour, but still we had to queue up. We had to bring the water up from the well very slowly in order not to disturb the sediment at the bottom. If someone stirred the mud, the other women would fuss and provoke a fight. Sometimes I had to go to the well ten times in one day, but generally five or six times were enough. In winter, my hands would freeze, so I would rub sheep's fat on them. My in-laws got up at about seven in the morning. I then had to make them tea, and my mother-in-law scolded me if I didn't get it fast enough. I had to sweep the floors of the house, light the stove, brew salted tea for the servants. After this, I fed and milked the animals. Once every five or six days, I had to clean out the kongs with a rake and refill them with manure and straw. 
I supplied the farmhands with their midday meals, carrying the food on my back to the fields. After giving them their lunch at about noon, I joined in the work. As we worked, we asked those who could sing well to sing for us. We were very fond of singing. After work, I rushed home frantically for fear of receiving a scolding from my mother-in-law. I had to hurry to make dinner for the family and servants if my mother-in-law would not light the fire. My mother-in-law would not even light the fire. If I did not prepare the dinner fast enough, she would beat me. After the death of my mother-in-law, I did not work in the fields very much because I had to look after my home and the children. For the first few years of my marriage, I often had to make do with three or four hours of sleep at night. goes on and on, and the end of it is, during those years of hardship, I never told anyone, not even my husband, that I was suffering. That's the amazing line. Okay. So you think, okay, she's the Dalai Lama's mother, so. <laughs> but she is a Dalai Lama, so then you begin to think, okay, she's the Dalai Lama's mother, she could do that. Then I think, well... Maybe also because she lived in a certain cultural context. You know, she didn't know that there were other ways. You know, that, um, you know, we live in a cultural context where uh, mother-in-laws are not supposed to do that. You know, where uh, uh, we have, uh, I think, fortunately come to a time of uh, uh, more equality among, between men and women. You remember the sentence where she said, men were always supreme over women. We don't operate in that culture. So I thought to myself, I wonder how much of this is culturally conditioned. Might be. Or I wonder how much of it, I like to think that some of it is wisdom conditioned. What would it help? So this is a true story. Every time I tell you a story, of course, it's true. But just to balance that, I want to tell you that I was um, on one piece of this trip what, that I was just on. I can't remember flying from where to where. Um, I sat next to a woman who uh, wanted to talk. It was really interesting. You know, often I get on planes and I want to talk to people because they're interesting. And on this particular trip, I was tired. And I got on and I really was thinking, okay, I'm going to be quiet. And this woman wanted to talk. So we talked quite a bit, especially they brought the meal and we visited. And uh, she was older than I by about 10 years, mid-70s. And um, traveling, um, we must have been coming back to California. She was coming to California from where she lived on the East Coast because one of her seven children lived here. And that child's child, who was an adolescent, was having some really worrisome medical difficulties. So she was on her way here to help her child with her grandchild. And we talked about that, uh, you know, you never finish with the worries. You, you know, if you have a family, then they proliferate, and then you worry about them. And uh, so it, with people, you can always share. Everybody has had a life. And there are certain things in life that you can share with or without children. Everybody who had a life can talk about difficulties and rising to the occasion. I noticed that she had a, um, um, a slight accent, and usually I can place what the accent was. I wasn't quite sure for a while. And uh, by and by, we've been talking long enough. 
I asked about it, and she said, well, she was born in Denmark, grew up there, and uh, she had met her husband there, and uh, he had been, his family had been Danish before they'd come to this country. He was born here. He came back to Denmark to on a visit or a study period, met her there, they married, and he brought her to the United States uh, in the late 1940s. So uh, she's been here a very long time. And, uh, and he died not so many years ago, that husband. They had seven children, a lot of grandchildren, and uh, had been married for about 50 years by the time, a little bit more than 50 years by the time he died. And uh, we talked about all kinds of things about child raising. It's amazing uh, how in the anonymity of a plane ride where you never find out a person's name, people will tell all kinds of things about themselves. I think it's so, it's a side story. We'll come back to it sometimes. But I think so much we want people to hear our story, you know, that all of us, you know. But the point of our story that I most took with me is at one point we talked about the fact that when she came to this country, she had been quite young. Probably, I think we, we were talking about that we both got married when we were not 20 years old. And uh, she, the, and in those days, in the late 40s, you didn't just get on an airplane every day and go to Europe. That uh, Certainly they couldn't afford it, and they, flights weren't like now, and uh, probably didn't come on a plane to begin with, probably came on a boat. Uh, so she could not visit her family very frequently. Her mother and father stayed in Denmark. And so the closest family ties she had here were to her husband's family. And I said, uh, just a part of the conversation, I said, uh, did you like your husband's mother? So she said, no, no, I didn't. She said, uh, she was really a very, very difficult woman. I went on to describe her in terms not so different from uh, the Dalai Lama's mother. She said she had a very bad temper. She was very self-centered. She was only interested in her own comforts. Uh, she had a very short fuse. Wasn't very nice to me. He said, but, she said, you know, they were the only family we had, so she said, I never, uh, I got along with her, she said, I did the best I could, she said, and I uh, never told my children a bad word about her, because after all, she was their grandmother, and I didn't want them to grow up with anything but a good impression of her. And I said, uh, did you tell your husband? And she said, no, never. She said, what good would it have done? And I was really so touched. I thought to myself, that is very good. She's not the Dalai Lama's mother. From the Dalai Lama's mother, okay. But not for 50 years, tell. I thought to myself, I wasn't that good. <laughs> it's a fact. My mother-in-law was also uh, a difficult woman. Difficult woman. She had a big temper as well, and uh, uh, a short fuse, and uh, a view and an opinion about a lot of things. Um, and when I first uh, met her son and married him, uh, I don't think she was very fond of me. By the time that, uh, by the end of her life, which was 1982, uh, she really loved me, and I loved her. And 
in her own way, she was doing the best she could. I really did. But in the beginning, she was really very difficult. And uh, uh, there were certain periods of time when she came and lived with us for a while, which were incredibly difficult because she had an opinion about everything and, and told me about them all day long. And it had mostly opinions about what I was doing. <laughs> Not about, well, the, it would be an oblique opinion. You cut an onion that way, I always cut it this way. You know, it was uh, just small things, but there was always a little bit of another way that you could do every small thing. And I was a young woman, and um, I didn't have the best attitude about it. <laughs> and I, I didn't do as well as either my Danish contact on the airplane or the Dalai Lama's mother. Sometimes, a lot of times I told my husband. And I don't think it enhanced his situation at all. He knew his mother was a difficult woman. It just made him a more complicated situation. Now he had the problem of his mother living in his house with his wife, and knowing that there was this amount of difficulty in my life, and there was no other possibility at that time, she needed to be with us. I'm thinking to myself, I was thinking about this morning, what good did it do me to tell him? Did I really need to? At some point, I got a journal, and I decided that I would, instead of telling him, write in the journal, keep a running journal of how to cut an onion, and <laughs> whether... Heinz ketchup was really better than Campbell's ketchup. <coughs> I decided I could make it funny and that I would someday write a book about it and that it would be full of, you know, my mother-in-law's mother aphorisms about which beans were better than other beans to buy. And if I saw that in that way, that I possibly could write a funny book about it or I could make it into a funny exercise, it, in fact, made it easier for me. Then I just kept the journal. There was a secret journal I didn't share with him. And I'd see how many times a day I could run in the bedroom and write another entry <laughs> in the journal. And it, it really did me some good. I wish, retrospectively, that I hadn't told him quite as frequently as I did about how unpleasant it was. But I wonder, and I, th I was wondering about this morning, it's really what I want to leave you with thinking about, it's uh, somewhat countercultural to tell that story because here we are, uh, I think, in a culture that really has put a high priority on, in intimate relationships, sharing the truth of our experience. So when we read about the Dalai Lama's mother saying, I never told him, or I uh, tell you about the Danish woman on the airplane who said, no, 50 years, I never mentioned it to him. There's nothing he could have done about it. It wouldn't have been helpful. And the Buddha said, the criteria for right speech is everything that you say should be truthful and helpful. So is it helpful? So I think, was it helpful for me to tell my husband? It was helpful to write in the journal. I wish I had thought about that earlier and done more of that and less than the other. Uh, why is really helpful? Or does sharing one's pain make intimacy? Really, that's the real question I was thinking about this morning. We think about that now that we don't have so much partnered relationships that are uh, based on roles, like husbands and wives, and husbands do this and wives do that. We don't have those. We are erasing those. We have it somewhat. But we talk more now about partnered relationships, all kinds of partnered relationships that are not based on roles. Now, certainly not roles based on gender, uh, not relationships based on gender, but 
and not based on role, based on mutuality and intimacy. So how do we get that intimacy if we don't tell people our pain? Or do we? Or don't we? And I'd like you to think about that until next week. because <laughs> I'd like for us to stop and just for one minute in appreciation for our great gift of being able to come here together as a community and uh, practice together and study together and think together and make intention together and aspire together and pray together for the well-being of all beings. Most particularly today for uh, our uh, friend and classmate, uh, Phyllis. May she soon be well diagnosed and appropriately treated so that she is well and back with us very soon. And may the merit of our practice uh, be a gift to all the world for the well-being of all beings everywhere.